Now, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, I think, for three weeks or three talks in Genesis 1. It's a big chapter. There's a lot in it. And uh, we're going to spend our time getting our heads around it. And I want to read uh, this morning um, just uh, a flavor of Genesis 1. And we'll read uh, halfway through uh, the chapter. So beginning at verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Now turn on to the very beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth, chapter 2, verse 1, were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now let me pray for us as we study these words. Our Father, we pray that as we study these words, they would achieve by your Holy Spirit the purpose for which they were written, encouragement for your people, confidence in our Creator God. 
Encourage us, instill in us that confidence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it'll help if you have your Bible open and the notes in the service sheet, which give us some headings for where we're going. And I want to take a little bit of time this morning to navigate us into Genesis chapter 1. I want to show us why Genesis 1 is in Genesis and why Genesis is in our Bibles. It really helps us, I think, get our heads around what is the detail inside this chapter. And the first heading you'll see on the notes is the message of Genesis. Every book of the Bible has a message. Every book of the Bible has a theme tune. And you've got to know what it is to know how to read a little bit of it. That makes sense. So think of a, a, a symphony. You hear a, a phrase, a, an overture, for example, to the symphony. If you're musically knowledgeable, you know what's going to come. And so it is with books of the Bible. Why is Genesis in our Bibles? And I want you to imagine the people of God in history, Israel, God's people, way back then, for whom and to whom the book of Genesis was written first. And Genesis was one of five books, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, the first five books in our Bibles, known as the Pentateuch, written almost certainly by Moses to God's people just before they got to the promised land. Let me uh, just unpack that a little bit. Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, contain two things. On the one hand, they contain history, and on the other hand, they contain law. The history they contain is world history, focusing in on the people of God right from creation at the very start to the creation of humanity, through the rebellion of humanity, to the promise that God would restore humanity And you get to Abraham and the promise through him that a mighty nation would come from his seed, his offspring. And then on to the people of God at the end of Genesis in Egypt, all the Joseph stories. And then the Exodus as Moses led them up out of Egypt. The journey through the wilderness. And then on the very edge of the promised land, before they had settled in the land that became known as Israel, Moses wrote these first five books of history and then second of law. You read a book like Deuteronomy or Numbers or Leviticus. It contains law. It contains instruction as to how God's people were to live. Now, why did Moses write it? Why did the people of God then need Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis along with the other books, to encourage God's people. To encourage God's people that the God who had created the world would redeem the world. And God would redeem the world through his seed or through a line of promise that one day would result in the coming of a redeemer, a savior to the world. 
And God wanted to encourage his people while they were on the road. He wanted to encourage his people when all around them the world was hostile to God and to them. He wanted to encourage his people when they doubted God's sovereignty. And uh, as God's people today in this period of world history, in particular in the West, in Europe, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in Chalmers, in your house, in your heart as an individual, Genesis is here for our encouragement as Christians. That the God who created the world with all the power that is in God to do that gives us confidence that God will redeem the world and gives us confidence in the struggles and issues we face even in our own lives as individuals. That's why Genesis is in the Bible. Now, Second heading, the structure of the book. I want to persuade you that uh, this is not just my idea. I want to show you from Genesis how Moses wrote the book. Where I said it's, a, it's the history of how God promised to redeem his people through the seed, through a line of promise, to encourage them as they journey. How did Moses write his book? Now, if you have a flick through Genesis in your hands or on your phone or whatever you're using, you'll see that it's divided up into 50 bits, 50 chapters. And these chapters have been added by uh, the translation editors. Whether you've got an ESV, an ABC, or an NIV, or whatever you're using, they're, they're, they've been added why have they been added? They've been added to give us bite-sized chunks. I think they've maybe been added to keep preachers under control. So we can only have one chance at a time. But they weren't there when Moses wrote it. They're not there in the Hebrew. It's important you see that. Let me show you how Moses structured the book. Look at uh, what we call chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Chapter 2, verse 4 marks the beginning of kind of narrative history. The story of humanity. Adam and Eve. Then rebellion. And then the promise in chapter 3 that God would restore humanity through his seed. Ultimately, that, of course, means the Lord Jesus. So uh, Genesis kind of begins narrative history, chapter 2, verse 4. And that runs through until the end of chapter 4. The next section, if you like, chapter 2 in Moses' book, chapter 1 being 2-4 to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 2 in Moses' original begins, I guess, at uh, 5-1. Look with me at what Moses writes. And notice... A very similar phrase. This is the book of the generations of Adam. It's the next bit in the narrative history of humanity. And we get a section from 5.1 to 6.8 that describes the generations from Adam down to Noah. That's chapter 2 in Moses' original 
text. And then uh, the next section begins at chapter 6, verse 9. Just have a look at that. These are the generations of Noah. And we get the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood through to the end of chapter 9. On to chapter 10, verse 1. The next section begins. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there follows a specific focus on Shem's descendants, then a general survey of humanity, then a specific focus on one family, Abraham's line, the family from which Israel, God's people, come. And the next section then begins at chapter 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. And, and that's the pattern that continues through the rest of Genesis with the accounts of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Isaac's sons, Esau, Jacob. Then the story of Joseph, Genesis 30 to 50. Uh, the people of God are brought down to Egypt in the Joseph account. And they languish there. And then Genesis finishes. Joseph dies. Exodus begins. Moses appears. God's people are led up out of Egypt towards the promised land. The law books are given. And Moses writes Genesis on the threshold of the promised land. Why? To encourage them about what? Well, primarily that God will redeem humanity through this line, this seed. You see the ten chapters describe that line of descendants down to Abraham and then ultimately down to the Lord Jesus. Now, I hope you can see how uh, Genesis is structured. Ten chapters, not fifty. Ten chapters of narrative human history that begin at chapter 2, verse 4. Therefore, what do we make of the bit at the beginning? Chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. In Moses' text, it is intended to be, I guess, something like a preface or an introduction. And it's a strange kind of literature as we read it. And we'll see more of that over the coming weeks. It's like a preface or an introduction to all that follows. What follows is narrative human history. It's like a preface standing at the beginning that tells us stuff about um, God. Now, I've taken time to show you that in order uh, that we get to see where Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 the bit at the beginning fits into the book as a whole. It's a prologue or an introduction to the rest of the book. And I hope you're persuaded by that. Now, in that light, let me consider now with us what the message of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is. Why is it there? What does it say? What is the message of this preface or introduction to the book? And it's an obvious point to make, but really important that what guides our reading and study of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is not, let me underscore that, is not a whole set of questions about creation and science, nor a whole set of questions about exactly how or how long it took God to create the world and humanity. That stuff is important, and Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, will shed light on it, and I'll speak a little bit about that. But we must not let that stuff guide our reading and study of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. God did not inspire 
the first bit of the Bible to lead us into endless discussions about that. God inspired the first bit of the Bible to go with the rest of Genesis to encourage you that God will redeem humanity and that you are part of that through faith in Christ and that God will provide all you need and care for you and stand by you until you are home in eternity. If you do stuff like listen to him and obey him and his word. See the point? Now, what's Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 about, about creation? See the point? If you're standing on the threshold of the promised land, God has said to you, look, I'm going to restore humanity. And by the time Israel was on the threshold of the promised land, they well knew that humanity was nothing like Genesis 1-1. What confidence do you and I have that God will indeed redeem humanity? What confidence do you and I have that God will lead you home to eternity? What confidence do you and I have that God will, in fact, create a new heavens and a new earth? where you and I will live for eternity. The confidence you and I have, and here we get to Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, is God made it all. He created it all. It's power at creation. It's the power that he gives us through life. It's the power that creates his kingdom on earth. That's you and me for Christians. It's the power that will bring us home. It's the power that will recreate the heavens and the earth again. It's not about exactly how God made it all. It's not about how long it took. It's not about whether the days in Genesis 1 are 24-hour time periods or long periods of time. It's not about some controversy between creation and evolution. Personally, I am of the view, like many Christians, that there is no conflict inherently between creation and evolution. The conflict is between creation and chance, or creation and accident. And we'll touch on a little bit of evolution stuff as we look at the details of Genesis 1 in time. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, or the preface, is there to encourage us. And therefore, we need to keep on the main uh, line. Somebody said to me after the first service, are you saying all this in order to avoid the difficult questions? I thought that was a good question. The answer is no, and we will tackle them. But we've got to, we've got to tackle the Bible as God inspired the Bible. I mean, none of us were there at creation, Nobody will finally and fully know exactly how God did it or how long it took. Nobody has really gone near that answer. What we have done as Christians, I think, is move away from conflicts that, that are kind of dogmas that we hold on to that aren't there. We need to read Genesis as God has inspired it, and we will touch on that uh, stuff. Let's keep on the main line now. You'll see on the sheet that I had hoped to do two things this morning. 
to speak about how God's Word creates and to speak about God's perfect creation. God's perfect creation will happen next week. This week, we just have time for one, how God's Word creates. And, and just to show you where we're going in the next few weeks, we're going to talk today about God speaking, what that means for us. Next week, we're going to talk about how God's speaking created a perfect creation. I'm going to show you how Genesis 1 opens up the perfect order of God's created world. And then we're going to spend a week looking at what Genesis has to say about rest. What is rest in our world? What is rest in eternity? And then a week on humanity. And then we'll get into chapter 2 and the narrative history of humanity begins. And we'll see how it all went wrong and how God is going to repair it and fix it. So that's where we're going. Today, God's Word creates. I wonder when we read Genesis 1 if you noticed which word dominated Genesis 1. There's one word that occurs 35 times. And that word is God. 35 times in Genesis 1. And if uh, uh, my children have comprehension to do at home, homework, and my children are at the age now where I can no longer do their mathematics homework, but I can do their English. Comprehension. They ask questions like, what is the main theme of this passage? And one of the ways you discern a main theme is what's the word that appears in it all the time? And the word that appears in Genesis 1 all the time is not I or me, but God. 35 times. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is about God. Beginnings have bearings on what follows. Genesis is about God. Genesis to Revelation is about God. The Bible is about God and not us. History is not about humanity. It is about God. Humanity is not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And that is very important if the purposes of Genesis is about steadiness and confidence and encouragement for God's people. Now, you and I uh, are uh, long enough in the tooth in life, even if you're 20, you're still long enough in the tooth in life to realize that real confidence, real security, real stability, you will never find if you trust or believe in yourself in the end. Real security, real confidence, Real trust is found in God and in God alone. Now, let me just uh, make the obvious application of that. I have no confidence in myself to secure or figure out my everlasting destiny. How absurd that would be. I have no confidence in myself to really know if I'm really honest in my heart, what tomorrow will bring. Only trust and confidence in God can answer these questions. 
So God, thank God, dominates history. God, thank God, dominates the Bible and Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Now, let's get on to God speaking. God's word creates. And I I want us to notice specifically how the world came into being. God did not click his fingers. He did not clap his hands. He didn't stretch out his hands. He didn't take a, a divine wand. He spoke. That is very significant. Let me show you. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate it from the waters and the waters. God spoke, and it happened. Verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, God said. Verse 14, 20, 24, and God said. Verse 26, then God said. Just a little change of pace there in your comprehension. Why is he saying then God said? Well, that's a signal that the next bit's about something special in creation, which is us. Then God said, let there be humanity. And God said. It's very striking, the repetition of the phrase in the text, and God said, and it was so. Now, just let me nail that down. And God said... And it happened. God speaks. And what he says happens. So immediately, I kind of guess the message to humanity is do not ignore the voice of God. Or do not say, God, you did not say that. Or I don't want to... Believe that. That's a risky thing to see. Of course, the flip side of that is a wonderful way to live on the basis of how God says we are to live. Okay, what does this repeated phrase, and God said, tell us about God? Well, that he is a speaking God. He speaks to us. How does God speak to us? Let me uh, unpack three ways God speaks to us. So if you're scribbling notes, three ways that God speaks to us, and reflect on these three ways and their significance. One, he speaks to us through his creation. You know, it's such an encouragement when you're preaching on creation that you discover, I didn't realize this till about 9.15 this morning, that tonight at 3 a.m., and some of you will be up at 3 a.m. studying, you students, I guess. Um, Some of you might be up because your children are up. Some of you might be up because you're old and you get arthritis. Some of you just might be up. At 3 a.m. this morning, there will be a lunar eclipse. And you've heard a sermon about how creation sings the Father's song. So get up at 3 a.m. and look out of your window if it's bright, and you will see the moon turn blood red. And you think, well, how did that happen? 
Is that impersonal plus chance plus time? Or is it just a little nudge to humanity that there's something out there that's just big? God speaks through his creation. It's all over the Psalms, the poetry, the songs of the Bible. Here's one, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Notice the words of the psalm. The heavens don't show, they declare, they speak. The sky above proclaims, preaches his handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech. And, And so you come along on a Sunday and you hear a sermon But if you look at the stars at night, you hear the proclamation of God to the earth. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Remember in Holiday in Ireland, we were in a church and the minister was preaching on Genesis 1. And he said, look, what you need to do tonight is, it's in the north of Ireland. And he named this beach. You need to go to this beach and lie on your back in the middle of the night and look up and listen. Listen to the preaching of God from the sky. And reflect at least that there is a God. It's a powerful thing. We just uh, sang. Creation sings the Father's song. So let me encourage you to listen to the heavens and the earth. To the mountains. To the stars. To the birds in the trees. To the wind in your faces. For it is God speaking to us. Now, one or two of you might be sitting there thinking that is soft or dodgy theology. It's not what Bible-believing churches should say. It is not soft or dodgy theology. You will not find salvation walking through the hills unless creation singing the Father's song leads you to the incarnate living word Jesus in whom salvation is to be found. But you might begin the process of getting to him. Creation does sing the Father's song. God speaks to us through his creation. So let me encourage you as Christians to enjoy the creation that God has created and to listen to him speaking through it to you. Simply to point to you to his sovereignty. You all have to look at me on a Sunday morning. I get to look at Arthur's seat. I get to see the, the mountain. I get to see the hills. One or two of you are looking around, kind of looking at me and wondering if that's okay. It's okay. Creation sings the Father's song. That's how God speaks to us. Secondly, this is such an encouragement to us. God speaks to us through the words of Scripture. Think of the people back God then, when Moses, inspired by God, wrote down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in this time of uncertainty, God gave them his written word. What is happening? God, in the world and in humanity, read Genesis. I will 
create a mighty nation through the seed that leads to my son. God, will you provide for us on the road? Read Exodus. I brought you out of Egypt. I will provide for you on the road. God, will you really do it? Read my promises. How do we live? Read my words. It's how you live. And, uh, of course, what God says to them in his word, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and what God says to us in his word, Genesis to Revelation, we have the full and complete revelation from God. Everything we need for life and godliness, how God will redeem the world, how God will provide for his people, how we are to live as his people. And some practical applications for us as Christians. Listen to what God says in his word. Read what God says in his word. And do what it says. The only thing that we need to be fearful of, I guess, as Christians, is ignoring what God's word says or changing it or altering it or picking and choosing from it. It's wonderful that God has spoken to us in his word. That every time we open up God's word, we hear God's voice. It's the kind of thing preachers say that, I'll pray at the beginning of a sermon, please God, will you speak to us? But then you're thinking, well, it's not God speaking to us, it's me. And I'm not God. But when we read God's word and when it's proclaimed, what does the psalm says? The heavens and the earth proclaim God. What is preaching? Preaching is God's means of proclamation of his word. When we all gather together on a Sunday, and so, of course, we hear God's voice. If the people preaching preach out of this and not make up something they want to say themselves. So you can roast me over lunch on a Sunday. And you need to if I make stuff up that's not in here. God speaks to us through his word. That's a wonderful thing. And uh, when the church in the Western world comes under pressure as it is, and we enter this period in our history where we're not the majority anymore and all that stuff, and we're all well aware of that, when it's hard to be a Christian in your CU, for example, or in a church, and it's just not as easy as it was, what we must not do is set aside the one thing that tells us how to keep steady and keep going. God's words. God's word. Yet so often churches concede on that. Thirdly, God speaks to us supremely through his Son, whom he sent into the world to rescue us. God is a speaking God. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through his words in Scripture. And he speaks to us through his Son. 
Uh, and that's a wonderful way that God broke his silence in history, isn't it? He, he speaks at creation. He speaks through his word. And how does he supremely break his silence? He breaks his silence in the person of his son. And how does John, at the beginning of his gospel, describe Jesus? Now you understand why John's gospel begins in this way. In the beginning was the word. That's John's way of referring to Jesus. He was there at the beginning. He created the world. And the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and him was life. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnate word, God's silence, fundamentally, ultimately broken in the person of his son. God is a speaking God. He speaks to us through creation, through his words in scripture, and through his son. He is not a silent God. He speaks. We live in a world of noise and confusion, but God speaks into that world, into our world into our lives. And for God's people, that is a great dose of encouragement as all sorts of things assail us. But God speaks to us clearly. Confidence and how we are to live. All we need to do is listen and do what he says. Let me say one more thing about the fact that God is a speaking God, and it's this, that when God speaks... It is not like me speaking or you speaking. It's not like the noise and clamor around us in the world. When God speaks, it is a mighty, mighty, powerful thing. How powerful is it? God said, let there be light and there was. That's pretty powerful. His words in Scripture are powerful enough to convert people, to transform lives. Think of Mark's gospel when we read it with somebody who is not a Christian. Do you really think for a minute that reading a short book like that can persuade somebody, if it's simply human words, to turn their whole life on its head forever? It's God's words, and they're mighty powerful. And that power is seen supremely in the life of his son, the living word. And supremely, when his son was lifted up on a cross to die that we might be forgiven and raised from death that we might have new life. Now, turn with me as we close to Mark's gospel. And a little section, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It's a great little passage in the Gospels that connects Jesus, the living word, back to creation and forward to the new creation. It's a great little passage. Let me read it. On that day when evening, Mark 4.35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waters were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are drowning? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. 
and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? In the fury of a storm, what did Jesus do? He spoke peace. Be still. And there was calm. The disciples who were with Jesus asked two questions. One question is at the end in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even in the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Let me ask you, do you know the answer to that question? Part two of my question, have you come to terms with the answer to that? Who is the creation singing of? Who is God's words in Scripture pointing you to? Who is Jesus Christ, the living word? He's your Savior if you listen with your heart and respond with your trust. Question two, the disciples asked. What a great question it is. It's there in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care? In the middle of the storm... With all sorts of pressures and threats around them, afraid they doubt Jesus' care. That is real, and we can empathize. And the Lord of creation stands up in the boat and speaks. He speaks with power to the wind and the waves. He calms the storm. But if there is any indignation in the heart of the Lord Jesus to his disciples, is that while he was asleep and the storm was raging, they did not trust him. That is true faith in life. When the storm is raging, and before he calms it, to hear and believe his words, peace be still. Let me encourage you that God is a speaking God. He speaks through creation. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his son. Listen to him. Listen to his words. Peace be still. And let them steady you. Or tuck them away for when you need them. And if you're not a Christian yet, God is speaking to you then turn to him, turn to Jesus, and answer his call. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that in your speech there is such mighty supernatural power, the power to create, the power to create new life when we believe in your words and believe in your Son, the power to change our lives, the power to sustain us, provide for us, care for us, bring us home, help us to listen and to do what you say, and help us never, Lord, to scrub what you say and go our own way. It's daft and leads to a dead end. Thank you that you are not a God that is silent and that speaks to us of your great 
and enduring faithfulness towards your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.